When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Adam 8 presents one of the most incredible artists of our time, John Lennon, singing 15 of the great rock and roll hits, never before available anywhere. Yes, you get 15 great hits in one fabulous record album for just $4.98. Hear John Lennon sing, Ain't That a Shame. Slippin' and a slidin'. Do you want to dance? That's right. Only $4.98 for this new and priceless collection of John Lennon singing 15 great rock and roll hits. Hear John Lennon's version of Peggy Sue. Boney Maroney. Angel Baby. Yaya. Hear these never-before-available John Lennon performances of such rock and roll hits as Sweet Little Sixteen, Stand By Me, Just Because, You Can't Catch Me, Bring It On Home, Rip It Up, and the fabulous Bebopalula. Yes, John Lennon sings 15 great rock and roll hits, all in one fantastic album for just $4.98 or $5.98 for 8-track tape. Here's how to order. Hi, I'm Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast. Now, I always try and bring you unique stories, and we have a good one for you on this episode. It involves John Lennon, his lawyer, and a mobster, and it surrounds Lennon's classic album of oldies, the rock and roll album. It's a story you may have heard about back in the mid-70s, but you probably haven't heard many of the details. So let me give you the background. Now, this episode started with a TV ad that ran for less than a week in January 1975, before Lennon and Capital EMI pulled it off the market. Lennon then Rush released his official version in February 1975. But today's story actually began in 1969. John Lennon had composed the song Come Together for the album Abbey Road. It was inspired by the Chuck Berry tune, You Can't Catch Me. Uh, Melodically, it it resembled the original, uh, and John took the third line of the second verse, Here Come Old Flat Top, for his new lyric. The publisher of Chuck Berry's music was a mobster named Morris Levy a founding partner of the Birdland Jazz Club in New York, owner of the Strawberries uh, chain of record stores, co-founder and owner of Roulette Records, whose most uh, famous artist was Tommy James and the Shondells. Uh, He was described uh, by Billboard magazine as one of the record industry's most controversial and flamboyant players, okay? So uh, 
While all this was going on, John Lennon had split with uh, Yoko and was living in Los Angeles with his personal assistant, May Pang. Most of you know that story. He didn't want to return to New York for the court case, so he agreed to record at least three songs from Levy's publishing catalog on his next album. This is right after Mind Games. And Levy dropped the suit. Now, as John was looking at Levy's catalog, he found a number of his favorite songs, so he decided to do a full album of cover songs, and this became the rock and roll album. Lennon initially teamed up with producer Phil Spector to record the album. I'll let uh, John explain. Well, it's a rock and roll album by the title, and uh, none of which I wrote. It's all... You might call it oldies but goldies. I was calling it oldies but moldies when I was making it. And uh, some of them are, quite a lot of them are cuts I was singing when I was 15. That's around 1955. Some of them are the first songs I ever learnt that were rock and roll, ever learnt to play on a, on a guitar. I even started on banjo originally. And uh, they're some of my all-time favourites. There's about 14 of them on the album. I could have gone on forever. I had to stop. The album was in two phases, as it were. It was started in 73, actually, when it was a brand new idea. <laughs> right? There's been a lot of oldies but goldies since then. I started with Phil Spector, and the tracks that I did with him, he produced. I just wanted to be a singer. And uh, to put it simply, there was some psychodrama, and uh, it, it sort of fell apart. And then there was a long spell where, for one reason or another, I couldn't get hold of the tapes. And then I did Walls and Bridges, and then I, I got the tapes the day before I was do, going in to do Walls and Bridges. So I did Walls and Bridges, and then I started sorting through the tapes I'd done with Phil. I chose the ones that I thought were uh, good enough, because some of them are a bit weird, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and then I went back in the studio uh, after a few weeks' rest from Walls and Bridges and, and cut enough to make a, a full album of, of material. And uh, here it is, you know. This pissed off Levy, and he threatened to refile his lawsuit. Lennon uh, assured Levy that the covers album was in the works. As a sign of good faith, Lennon gave Levy a rough copy of the tracks to review. And Levy offered to directly market the album via television mail order, all through his own Atomate Limited record label, bypassing Capital and EMI. Claiming he had an oral agreement with John Lennon, Morris Levy pressed an album from the rough tape Lennon had provided, then proceeded to sue Lennon, EMI, and Capital for $42 million for breach of contract. John finished work on his version of the album, and in February 1975, Capital Rush released the official rock and roll album that we know today. At the same time, John reconciled with Yoko. The case was heard in New York District Court, and our guest is Jay Bergen, a trial lawyer in New York City for 45 years. He's handled antitrust cases, entertainment-related copyright cases. He also represented Albert Grossman, Bob Dylan's first manager, and uh, Terry Knight, a manager of Grand Funk Railroad, in his uh, litigation against uh, the band, and also represented the late George M. Steinbrenner, of course, the legendary colorful owner of the Yankees. But that has nothing to do with today's story. Uh, Jay has just released a new book, Lennon, the Mobster, and the Lawyer, The Untold Story, where he shares his experiences as John Lennon's attorney and friend. 
I think you'll find this conversation with Jay of great interest since it's got the uh, courtroom drama that unfolded and John Lennon's testimony in which he outlined his creative process for the judge. So here's our conversation with Jay Bergen. Let's talk about this book. Uh, it's uh, interesting. Um, so first of all, let me just start. Give me a little of your background. I know you were a trial attorney, but just for the audience, just give us a little background. Um, originally from Long Island, practiced in uh, New York City for uh, 45 years as a, as a trial lawyer. Um, retired, moved to uh, North Carolina after a couple of years, lived in uh, Brooklyn Heights for a long time, um, and uh, went to Fordham College, Fordham Law School. And I clerked for the chief judge of the uh, United States District Court for the Southern District of New York in 1962, uh, Sylvester, Honorable Sylvester Ryan. And uh, I've been a litigator and a trial lawyer throughout my, uh, my career. Uh, had a brief sojourn where I left New York and uh, got a job with a law firm in the Virgin Islands. Uh, that lasted about a year and a half, and I realized I should have uh, stayed in New York, so I came back and uh, stayed there for the rest of my career. Okay, so um, we're going to get into this case. The case we're talking about is the John Lennon rock and roll album case, which has gotten a lot of publicity over the years, but now you've sort of put everything together in a book as you were the uh, attorney, trial attorney assigned to the case. So just for our listeners, and actually for myself, too, because I know why this case came about, but it is all contingent on the original Levy, Lennon versus Beatles come together. Could you give me the, the background on that case and what happened that led us to this point? Sure. Um, Levy, who was notorious for bringing these uh, copyright infringement cases, uh, filed this case in 1970 against the Beatles publishing companies. Uh, he claimed that uh, Come Together, which was written by John, and that's why John kind of assumed the responsibility, uh, frin infringed the copyright of You Can't Catch Me, the Chuck Berry hit. Uh, by the time the case was almost ready for trial in October of 1973, not much had happened during those uh, three years. John was in uh, Los Angeles and had just started recording what he called his Oldies But Goldies uh, album with Phil Spector uh, producing. Uh, all the classic rock songs from the 50s and 60s. Of course, when the case, when he was notified that the case was going to come to trial, John said, you can't bother me. I'm working. Uh, we've got to settle the case somehow. And the settlement was, instead of a payment of money, Levy kind of got his clutches on John by uh, extracting the settlement of where John on the next album, which was the Goldies, the Oldie But Goldies album, he was supposed to record three songs owned by Morris Levy, one of which had to be You Can't Catch Me. Phil Spector, uh, unknown to John, uh, was taking the master tapes home every night and then Phil disappeared and they didn't get the tapes back until the summer of 1974. 
by which time John was ready to start doing, uh, recording his album, uh, Walls and Bridges. When Walls and Bridges came out, Morris Levy started jumping up and down screaming, where are my three songs? Now Morris knew that they would not be on Walls and Bridges because they were all John's original compositions, except for a little joke cut at the end with uh, John singing Yaya, the Lee Dorsey hit, and Julian, his son, banging away uh, on the drums. Uh, that led to a meeting in October of uh, 1974, where the result of which was that Levy claimed that John made an oral agreement in that, in that, during that meeting uh, to permit Levy to market the rock and roll album on TV on a worldwide basis. Nothing was in writing. And when John can finally, you know, did the basic recording for the album, uh, Levy kept harassing him and asking him, where are my songs? Where are my songs? And John finally, mistakenly also, uh, gave him a rough mix uh, of the unfinished album, a, a reel-to-reel seven and a half IPS tapes. Uh, when John and his and his advisors told him, told Levy uh, in January of '75 that Capitol did not want to sell the album on TV, Levy started making noises to release it himself and start advertising it, where you'd send in your 498 and they'd send it to you in the mail. That's when I got involved. Uh, my partner, senior partner, David Dalgenis, who had been hired by John, Ringo, and George to advise them on the dissolution of the Beatles partnership, um, asked me to go to a meeting at Capitol Records on February 3rd, 1975. I went to the meeting, talking to Capitol lawyers, when suddenly the door to the conference room opened and John Lennon walked in. And I did not know he was going to be at the meeting. Uh, I'm not, I don't know whether the Capitol lawyers did, but the result of that meeting, uh, Denny, was that John would go back into the studio the next day, February 4th, next two days, February 4th and 5th, and finish the album. He, John decided that he really didn't want to wait any longer. This, this record had taken more time than any album he had ever recorded. He was really kind of sick of it and wanted to finish it. And that's what he did. And when John and I left the Capitol building that evening, about seven o'clock, we got out on the street. He said, uh, good night, I'm going home. And I believe that that was the first night that John went back to the Dakota and reunited with uh, Yoko after his lost weekend and uh, his, their 18 month uh, separation. And it, was, and it was shortly after that, that Levy started advertising. We started sending telegrams to the TV station saying, this is not the authorized album. Capitol released the official album on February 13th. Morris Levy pulled the record, the, the, his ads, having sold, I think about 1,650 cop, 1,250 copies. And 
shortly thereafter sued John and uh, Yoko, uh, John and EMI Capital right. Records, right. claiming that they had this, he had this oral agreement. Okay, so let's get into that. But before, uh, I just want you to answer this question. I know you weren't involved, but uh, do you think uh, had Lennon pursued Levy on the come together that he would have, that Levy would have won or the Beatles would have won? Well, I mean, it was one line. Here come yeah, all the I know. And, and Well, and the complaint was only three pages long and the complaint focused completely on the one line. I, I, I was not involved in the case. I don't know what happened uh, during, the, during the case. There wasn't much activity in the case for three years, but it was the one line, uh, here come old flat top, which, uh, Chuck Berry was talking about a convertible that passed him on the Jersey Turnpike one night. John Lennon was talking about here's a here's a man who used to have a flat top and now has long a haircut, now has a hair down to his knee. Okay, so do you think that uh, Lennon being at that first meeting that where you, where you first met him, do you think that that helps solidify uh, you becoming the lawyer? Well, I think what really solidified it, uh, although it happened later because Morris then filed a lawsuit in New York Supreme Court alleging the breach of contract, as I, as I said, alleging tens of millions of dollars in damages. But surprisingly to me, about two weeks later, they filed a federal antitrust case in the federal court in New York against the same defendants. That never happened to me in my career where the same plaintiffs would sue the same defendants in two courts. And that, in, in my opinion, was a fatal mistake because cases in the New York Supreme Court move very, very slowly. In the federal court, they are assigned immediately to a judge the day they are filed and they have a very fast calendar and they move very quickly. So uh, after John and Yoko had, had an opportunity to look at these complaints, John called me one day and asked me to come up to the Dakota to meet Yoko. We spent about an hour talking about the case. She asked me a lot of questions about my background, uh, about uh, the cases, why Morris had filed the two cases. And I told him, and I had told John this in telephone conversations, that I believe that Morris was just trying to bully him into a settlement and was thinking that John and Capital and EMI would kind of cave and, and give in. John, at that point, was not going to settle. He was not going to cave in. Morris had gotten his clutches on him through the Come Together lawsuit but he didn't want that to continue. He wanted it to stop. I went up and had this meeting with Yoko and, and Denny, it wasn't until I really started working on this book five years ago that uh, that was an audition. If Yoko hadn't liked me, I would have been out. Uh, that's that's I, absolutely I, correct. I've been up there a number of times. I know her I've been <laughs> in that kitchen uh and uh, absolutely if she had well, any qualms yeah i was i would have been out and i guess i wasn't i guess i was a little bit naive uh in the sense that i knew they were very close to each other but i didn't you know i didn't really grasp at the time 
And uh, it was an audition. John wasn't in the room. We were sitting in the in the big living room uh, overlooking Central Park. And we had a very pleasant conversation. She grilled me, but very, very politely. Uh, it was obvious she was a very smart woman. Uh, she had read the papers. She had read the complaints. And at the end of the meeting, she stood up and she said, well, I'm glad we had an opportunity to talk. Thank you for coming. Adios. Hmm. I left. And okay. after that, uh, you know, after that, I had, I had no contact with her until the trial. Right. Okay. So uh, let me just uh, fill in some blanks here. So you're what, about three, four years older than John? A little less than three. A little less than three. Okay. And what yeah. was your awareness of the Beatles? I think uh, you, you actually saw them, didn't you? Yes, I did. I did. Well, I was a, a rock and roller from uh, my high school days in Long Island uh, in the early 50s. Um, I had seen Elvis when I was in college in Philadelphia. Um, and I saw the Beatles at the Forest Hills Tennis Stadium uh, in August of 1964. Um, I had also seen their, their movie, A Hard Day's Night. And uh, I thought, these guys are the real thing. They, they were very, very clever. Uh, I was a Beatles fan. And so there I was suddenly, you know, representing John Lennon. You saw him on Ed Sullivan, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And, and I saw them, you know, the great thing about the tennis stadium at Forest Hills was there were only about 16,000 people there. Right. So it was a very, very intimate setting. So um, up until that time, okay, so you're aware of his music and, and all that kind of stuff. Now you have the meeting. Tell me your personal, I mean, obviously you're a fan, like anybody, the first time you meet somebody, what, what went through your head when he actually met face to face? Well, I, I, I was, you know, I was really kind of stunned for a, uh, a few seconds because I didn't know he was going to be there, but we all, we shook hands, introduced ourselves and, and then he just very quickly evolved into a client. I was trying to find out the facts. Uh, one of my real strengths as a trial lawyer was uh, I always be believed in being prepared and I always believed in understanding the facts completely. And I explained that to John and we spent a lot of time going over the facts and with not only with him, but with May Pang, with Harold Sider, uh, anyone else who was involved. Uh, and the facts never changed, uh, Denny. The facts were the same. When we talked at that meeting uh, about the possibility of putting this album on TV, Morris was told over and over again, we have to get EMI's permission. And every, you know, everybody in the music business knew that the Beatles were exclusively signed to, to EMI. So Morris was not fooled at all. He didn't, you know, nobody put a con job on him. And John and I developed a, a, a relationship. Uh, I was the, the lawyer, he was the client. Uh, and we just kind of clicked. And, and the other thing, Denny, is that you know, this was the time when John dropped out of the music business. He, he, was, he was very chilled out. I think he was very glad to have gotten back with uh, with Yoko. Um, 
and all he wanted to do was just await the birth of uh, their, their child. Mm -hmm. Right. His, 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 uh, his house husband days. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, right. and he was, uh, I, I think he was very happy at that time. Yeah. So uh, what, what initial thoughts did you have of why you thought this had a good chance of, uh, of winning? Well, th there's no such thing as a slam dunk right. in, in litigation and trial work. Uh, there's no such thing as a slam dunk when you release an album. Nobody knows what, what's going to happen. But, but I believed that, that the facts were really in our favor. Now, I didn't know anything about Morris Levy. I was just beginning to realize that he was really, uh, you know, he was a gangster. Uh, uh, if it wasn't for the fact that he was Jewish, he would have been a made member of the mafia. And they had, the Genovese crime family had really total control of him. Uh, Thomas Eberly was one of his secret partners in um, Roulette Records and some of his other publishing companies. So it, it, isn't, it isn't that I thought we were going to win. Uh, John and Yoko said, look, that more than once, the most important thing, Jay, is we want to hold down the amount of money that John is going to owe Morris. And I kept telling them, if I have anything to say about it, you're not going to owe him any money. And we're going to be prepared and ready when we get to a trial. And since, we, since I knew that the federal case would move quicker, we, we kind of pushed things along that way. And, and I was just confident that if we were prepared, we would have the better of the, of the deal. I remember once I said to, uh, to John before, uh, before he te testified at his deposition uh, in uh, May of 1975, I said, you know, we've got an advantage here in this case as we were going over the facts. And he said, what's the advantage? I said, you're gonna be telling the truth. Morris is not gonna be telling the truth because the truth uh, would cause him to lose the case. Right, okay. So John felt good that you felt good that you could win this thing and nothing's a slam dunk as you said. Tell me what the two or three, and for those that you really got to read this thing from beginning to end because you go day by day, witness by witness and it's great. So um, tell me the two or three pivotal witnesses that supported your case? Well, John, of course, was the pivotal uh, witness. The other pivotal witness that supported our case was Morris Levy. Explain that one. Because I know, I, I was going to say, I know you're probably going to say Dave Marsh and one of the, you know, the, the person who described the audio and stuff, but, it, you know, this is a good point to t talk about Morris Levy. I know who he was. I didn't personally know him, but I'd run into him at industry events. I knew the whole deal with him putting his name on there. I knew the fact he owned what Birdland in New York, yeah. uh, Strawberries Records uh, chain he owned, and everybody in the industry sort of knew what he was about, but they all tolerated him. Well, they all tolerated it, I think, because a lot of them were afraid of him. Um, you know, but but anyhow, let me get back to the before you do. Did you did you ever read Tommy James's book? Yes, I did. Okay, fine. <laughs> Enough said. Go ahead. I did. I did. 
Okay. <laughs> that was one of the first things I did uh, when I when I started thinking about writing writing the book. But the key here was that Morris Levy hired William Shirtman to be his lead lawyer. William Shirtman did not participate in any of the pretrial proceedings except for two pretrial conferences before Judge McMahon. I knew Judge McMahon. I knew of him in the courthouse. He was a 16, 16 years on the bench. He tolerated no monkey business in the courtroom by lawyers or uh, their, their clients. And instead of handling the case, Shirtman turned it over to one of his younger partners, a young lawyer named Alan Kanzer. Alan Kanzer took the depositions. He took John's deposition and he defended Morris's deposition. And that, in my opinion, came very close to malpractice because Bill Shirtman should have been taking John's deposition and he should have been uh, defending Morris's deposition. He should have been handling all of the other depositions. And so by the time we got to the trial, Denny, I was prepared and Bill Shirtman wasn't. You can't, you can't be the trial lawyer who's gonna handle the case and, and try to catch up at the last minute. And therefore, when I say that Morris Levy was, was one of our best witnesses, when he started questioning uh, Morris on the first day of the, of the trial before Judge McMahon, Morris was volunteering testimony. He was telling stories. He, he was not prepared. And that really was uh, extremely uh, damaging. And it got the judge very angry. He kept volunteering testimony. I kept objecting. Your Honor, Mr. Levy is not answering the questions. Uh, and uh, the judge was lost his patience uh, very quickly. The so that was one of the, one of the keys to uh, to winning the case. We were prepared. John was prepared. Our other witnesses were prepared. Um, May Pang did a terrific job uh, when she testified, because again, the story was the story. And was there tension when May was there, and was Yoko there when May was there? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you a funny story about that, and it's in the book. But um, of course, this trial was in the winter. So May came uh, one day, and we didn't, we didn't get to her. So she had to come back the next day. But when she finished the next day, her testimony, it was near the end of the day, and uh, we were adjourning court. And John came up to me where I was putting my trial material in my uh, soup, my bag. And he whispered to me, Jay, Jay, you've got to get May out of the court, out of court and into the elevator. We can't wind up in the elevator with the two of us, me with Yoko and May. I, I said, what? I, I don't understand. He said, please, she's wearing Yoko's coat. I said, what are you talking about? He said, Jay, you've got to get her in the the elevator. So I go, I said, okay, okay. I went out, 
into the uh, lobby uh, where we were waiting for the elevators and talking to May and thanking her for her testimony, appreciating her time. And I gradually eased her towards the, the elevator and the door opened in she got and away she went. Uh, I never asked John what, what's the deal about Yoko's coat. I think, it, I think it was actually a coat that Yoko, a winter coat that Yoko gave to May. Okay. But that was, yeah. that, there was a little ten, tension there. So she was a good witness. She was a good witness. Yeah. Yeah. Again, because she was telling the truth. And Morris's story kept changing. And tell me about the, uh, the strength of uh, Dave Marsh's testimony, because you seem to think that was- Well, that was on the, on the counterclaims, uh, because uh, we and Capital and EMI filed counterclaims, which basically alleged that the, the Roots album, Morris's you know, kind of pirated version, uh, interfered with the marketing of the Capital album, John Lennon, Rock and Roll. It reduced uh, the money that, that Capital would have made. It reduced John's uh, royalties. And also, Morris did not have any written permission from John to use his name or likeness or his performances. So uh, that's, that's the part of the, the trial where John gave some, uh, some wonderful testimony about how he and the Beatles gradually took control of the whole process from writing the songs, how they were gonna play the songs and the album covers. And, and as you know, Denny, probably better than anybody, the Beatles really turned uh, album covers into an art form. Right. Um, Dave's testimony kind of, that's why we had John testified. We used uh, a lot of the Beatles albums and John Lennon albums as evidence in courts, court. Uh, we actually brought in equipment from the record plant and played some of the records. Uh, and, and Dave's testimony uh, was critical because uh, the judge told us when we got to the counterclaim part, he said, look, and I, I don't think I explained that, that we had this mistrial and the judge in the, in the first case, we wound up with no judge and a new judge being appointed. And the new judge was uh, Thomas Grisey, who was a harpsichordist and a pianist in an amateur classical music group. And he told us the first day we met with him, I don't know anything about this music, but I am a listener. So if you expect me to award damages on the counterclaims, you are gonna to have to explain to me why there is this conflict between the Roots album and the John Lennon album. So John explained a lot of that in terms of uh, the, uh, the, the, the way he recorded albums and that this, this Roots album could not be a, a top album because it was a seven and a half IPS rough mix. Um, so, so the part with, with uh, Dave Marsh was, uh, I gave Dave Marsh a copy of each of the albums and I asked him to listen to them. And then we'd sit down and talk about him possibly testifying. The next day, he sent me a, a two page, a, almost a three page letter 
which is on my uh, website, as a matter of fact, John Lennon, rockin', John Len Lennon, the mobster and the lawyer.com, comparing the two albums and really doing a, a devastating job of uh, the, the, the damage that the Roots album would create because it was so shoddy. The cover was shoddy. The, the, there were tracks on the album that, that, sh that John took off, Angel Baby and Be My Baby, because they were so terrible. They were recorded in Los Angeles when there was a lot of uh, drinking and carousing in the studio. Uh, and Dave's, uh, Dave's testimony was, was the other critical part of the, uh, the counterclaims along with John. So at the end of the day, you win in the counterclaim. And I'm not sure I followed why Morris still got a small amount. Well, <clears throat> first of all, when, we, when we, we won the first part of the case where the judge threw out Morris's counterclaims, he basically said uh, that Mr. Levy has trouble even explaining what the terms were of the contract that proves that there wasn't a contract among, among other things. Then we went to the counterclaims and uh, he awarded a total of like over $400,000 to both Capital, EMI and John. Capital and EMI settled the case behind my back. They went to, they approached Levy uh, and Shirtman and uh, Shirtman would not settled, did not want to involve us in the settlement. I found this all about, about later. They settled for $200,000. That meant that we were stuck defending the entire uh, appeal. The $6,000 that, that Morris got were after we, after we resolved these other, these other two claims, we agreed to settle a claim. We, we agreed to try the claim that Morris claimed, well, since the songs, my songs weren't on the album, I lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in publishing royalties. <clears throat> and I was able to show with the witnesses I put on, on that aspect of it, <clears throat> that Morris wouldn't have, wouldn't have resulted in hundreds of thousands of uh, dollars of, of publishing royalties. Uh, and he only got $6,795. So John's damages were released, were reduced by the Court of Appeals, but he still wound up with $86,000 or $87,000. And then Morris got $6,700. Why did the Court of Appeals reduce the uh, judgment? Uh, they, there were some things that they found that the judge uh, had, uh, the, the trial judge, had, had made a mistake on. I think one of the principal points was that the judge in, in deciding how many albums rock and roll would have, would have sold, but for the interference of the Roots album uh, in the marketing and confusion, the public confusion, he used a, a, the Canadian sales. And the Court of Appeals found that the use of the Canadian sales to arrive at the number of albums that he said it would have sold. I, I think it, it sold 345,000. He found that it would have sold, I think at least another 100,000. Um, that's why the Court of Appeals uh, reduced the, uh, the, the damages in terms of the, uh, 
um, the royalties to John. Okay. So uh, after the case is over, are you in touch with John? Do you see him again or talk to him again? No, no, okay. I didn't. There was, uh, when the case was over, uh, he, Levy was forced to turn over to us uh, whatever records, Roots records he hadn't sold and also um, the old eight tracks. Those were the days of the, of the eight tracks. Right. And I called Yoko one day, I called the, the apartment and spoke to Yoko and I said, look, I've got these, these albums. Uh, I've got a couple of boxes of albums that uh, are now John's. And she said, well, you, you're gonna give them to us? I said, yeah, I'd like to keep a couple for myself uh, as, a, uh, as souvenirs. And also, I'd, I'd like to give one to uh, Jesse Ed Davis and another one to uh, Eddie Motto, who testified. But uh, other than that, yeah, I'll, I'll bring them up. So I brought them up. Also, that's when we exchanged the checks and everything, and I gave them the money from, from Morris, because when, when Morris appealed, he had to put up a bond in order to pay the damages. So we were assured of getting the full amount of whatever the Court of Appeals finally uh, awarded and uh, I gave her the boxes of the the records and that was it okay. you know John at that point the Sean would have been uh, that was January of ninth, January February March 1977 so Sean would have been about a year and a half old and John was really into taking care of him now you did run into Yoko later right at the record place? yes yes um, I had a, I had a, um, a client, Eve Moon, who I had negotiated her deal with Capitol Records. This was in uh, December of 1980. Um, I, she was recording at the record plant. I, at that point, was representing the record plant. Uh, I went, on the, I lived out in New Jersey, so I, I stopped there at the record plant to, uh, to just say hello to Eve. And when I walked in, um, I was surprised to see Yoko sitting in the reception area. I walked over and said hello to her. And she said to me, what are you doing here? And I said, I have this client who's recording in Studio A, um, Eve Moon, and this is her first album. And I said, how, I asked how John was, um, spent some time with Eve, uh, and then I left. And I've always regretted not asking what studio John was in. Um, I'm sure he would have been glad to see me. I could have said hello and uh, wished him luck on the uh, album and uh, the new album that they had out at that time, Double Fantasy. But, but I didn't. So, you know, I, I didn't see him again. And five, five nights later, he was killed. So... Did the fact that you handled this case get you other entertainment law clients? I I tried after that. Uh, Denny. It sounds like you got you got capital. You got the record plant. You got. Uh, hey, I got. Uh, you came you came with a pretty good recommendation. So. <laughs> yes, I did. But you know, as you know, uh, from your experience, uh, the the competition in New York for. Uh, lawyers representing uh, artists, singers and songers was, songwriters was pretty fierce. 
I did I did represent Till Tuesday with Amy Mann. Uh, I had a band from Boston, Face to Face. Jimmy Iovine produced their uh, their first album, but I got kind of sidetracked into you know uh, other things and other lit- pieces of litigation, and uh, I didn't really that didn't really become a, a full time mm-hmm. practice for me. So are you are you fully uh, retired? Yes. Yeah, I, I retired about uh, 10 years ago. And you, why did you wait so long to start the book? I don't know. I carried those, I carried around with me through five or six moves, uh, five boxes, bankers boxes of the entire file, mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of pages, the exhibits, deposition, everything. And it was after we were here in North Carolina that I started thinking about them. And I, I had never looked in the boxes through, the, through the, that entire time. This is the only case that I had, uh, that I had been involved in where I kept the files when I retired. I, I don't know whether it was you know, a connection with John, having, uh, having all of these, uh, the, the records and everything and the, and the transcript of the trial, but I went out to the garage where we had them in a storage room. And I was thinking about, well, maybe I'll donate them to the Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <clears throat> and I sat down on one of the boxes and started reading John's testimony. And then I thought to myself, there's a story here. And there's a story that's got to be told that wasn't told and hasn't been told. There have been bits and pieces in the press and over the years about this case. but Frankly, Denny, nobody's gotten it right. I want to ask you something. Was there press on a day-to-day basis during the trial? No. Nobody did it. Was there a closed session or nobody knew it was no. really going on? No, I, I, don't, I don't know why. There, there were, you know, uh, I think Chet Flippo wrote an article right in the beginning from Rolling Stone. Um, you know, John had, John had dropped out by now. He'd been into that household and husband thing for over a year. And it, it was interesting because that was the beginning of the period where you had to go through the, 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 the monitors, you know, to check that you didn't have any bombs with you or something. And so, but we were in and out of the courtroom every, every day. And I, I guess I forgot to mention that John and Yoko came to every day of the trial for 20 days, spread over January. And we, we had about a month off. We went back for the counterclaims in March, April. Um, and I think that was another key to this case, Denny, because I think that sent a message to Judge Grisey that the two of them were really interested, particularly John, that he was there every day, and, and he, he was there days when he didn't have to testify. Morris wasn't there all the time. Morris bailed out uh, pretty, pretty early. Uh, so... The more I read of his testimony, the more I realized that I was really the only one now, uh, when I started writing this book in 1970 and 2017, 2017, it could tell the accurate story because I was there. And I also knew, I knew who John Lennon was at that time. Well, you tell a great story. The book is excellent. I recommend it to Beatle fans. It's the one 
you always like to say, I mean, somebody once told me years ago, and I have a couple of Beatles books out myself. I know you somebody, somebody once told me a few years back, there's three things in the world you can never have enough books on. Marilyn Monroe, the Titanic, and the Beatles. <laughs> and to this day, I'm convinced that that's correct. I think, well, I think you're right, because I mean, look, look, at I think the, it was it, Philip, Philip Norman that told me that, who wrote the, that biography on the Beatles. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Let me thank you for being a great guest. I wish you a lot of luck with this book. Thank for, you. I appreciate for Beatle it. fans, it's a must. I know it really goes deep into the weeds, and it's not like for the casual, it, but it's, all, it's for the hardcore John Lennon. It's for legal eagles. Fantastic. Well, well, great talking to you. Great talking to you, and, and good luck with the book. So that's our conversation with attorney Jay Bergen, who has put out his story in the new book, Lennon, the Mobster, and the Lawyer, The Untold Story. Please keep in touch. Go to the website if you have any comments, therockpodcast.com. You can find me on Facebook, and you can send me an email at hello at therockpodcast.com. That's it for now. So long. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.